PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. If you tie it to the license, people will do it. And I think the Federation is the one that has the power to do it. I'm a strong supporter of residencies and fellowships as the only way that we can do this in an economical manner. It's about being pragmatic and practical here. I think when we look back, we'll see that this study is actually a landmark study. Welcome to this PTJ podcast entitled Continuing Professional Education, Have We Got It Right? Today, Dr. Josh Cleland discusses his paper from the January 2009 issue of PTJ, with Dr. Carol Lewis and Dr. Stanley Paris. Our moderator today is PTJ editorial board member, Dr. Christopher Marr. And now, Chris Marr. Welcome to the PTJ podcast entitled Continuing Professional Education, Have We Got It Right? My name is Professor Chris Marr. I'm on the editorial board for PTJ, and I'll be the moderator for today's podcast. The idea for today's podcast arose from a paper in the January 2009 issue of PTJ, It was entitled, Does Continuing Education Improve Physical Therapist's Effectiveness in Treating Neck Pain? A Randomized Clinical Trial. This trial compared two methods of continuing professional education for the management of neck pain. The first method was the traditional two-day workshop comprising lectures and a practical workshop, while with the second outreach approach, the traditional workshop was supplemented with two follow-up meetings and an educational outreach visit. The trial found that therapists who attended the new outreach approach achieved better outcomes for their patients than those who attended the traditional continuing education approach. I really enjoyed the paper and thought the issues it raised would be perfect for a podcast. So today we have the lead author of the trial, Dr. Josh Cleland. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Josh is an associate professor in the physical therapy program at Franklin Pierce University. He practices clinically in outpatient orthopedics at Rehabilitation Services at Concord Hospital. He is also, like me, on the editorial board for physical therapy. Our next participant is Dr. Stanley Paris. Welcome, Stanley. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Dr. Paris is the founding chairman of the orthopedic section of the APTA. Stanley was educated in New Zealand, and he also obtained a PhD in the United States in the field of neuroanatomy. Since 1965, Dr. Paris has been teaching continuing education courses and has trained others to do likewise. In the area of manual therapy, a series of continuing education courses leads to the opportunity to sit for the manual therapy certification offered since 1981. Some of his courses can be taken for credit towards graduate degrees. He is also the founding president of the University of St. Augustine. Our last participant is Dr. Carol Lewis. Hello, Carol. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for being with us. Carol is an adjunct professor in the Department of Geriatric Medicine at George Washington University and also a consulting geriatric clinical specialist for professional sports care and rehabilitation. Dr. Lewis is also the president and founder of Great Seminars and Books, and editor of the journal Topics in Geriatric Rehabilitation. She has 20-plus books, including Geriatric Rehabilitation, The Functional Toolbox, and Age-Defying Fitness. So now to start the discussion, if we start first with Dr. Cleland. For the sake of background, what drew you to this research topic, and why do you think it is important to evaluate continuing education? Yes, thank you. As we all know, the reality is despite the considerable time and effort spent on clinical research, relatively little attention has been paid to ensuring the findings of research are implemented into clinical practice. Furthermore, it's relatively unknown if educating therapists and evidence-based management strategies would indeed improve patient outcomes. 
So the question for me became, what is the best educational method or combination of methods to enhance patient outcomes? Previously, in a non-controlled study, Brennan and colleagues demonstrated that the outcomes for patients with neck pain did not improve after a two-day con ed course. However, when a group of those therapists that attended the course then participated in a quality improvement project which lasted over a few months, they actually experienced an improvement in the outcomes of their patients with mechanical neck pain. Furthermore, the medical literature has shown that a longitudinal approach is probably the best method for changing behaviors as well as improving outcomes. So then we decided to examine a longitudinal active approach to continuing education on improving patient outcomes for individuals with neck pain. Thanks for that, Dr. Quillen. It's an interesting result you've got, and I guess it's an interesting study because it's one of the first in the field, certainly for physical therapy. What do you believe may account for or explain the better outcomes associated with the outreach approach to continuing education? Yeah, well, I think there's probably a couple of explanations. First of all, just personally, I think that the outreach sessions where I went out to the clinic with these therapists and I co-treated a patient with mechanical neck pain with them in their actual clinical setting. Following that, we had some discussion about appropriate management of the individual. We discussed what interventions would be appropriate and what interventions would not be appropriate. So my guess is this outreach session where you're working with a therapist on an actual patient in their clinical setting is advantageous and might have been the reason for the benefit. We now open this up to Dr. Paris and Dr. Lewis. What are your thoughts on this trial? Are there implications for professional education for physical therapists? Maybe if we start with Dr. Lewis, first of all. Well, first I'd like to applaud Dr. Cleland for doing the study. I think we all want therapists to do the right thing. And my initial reaction to the study, it was well-designed, but the results need to support some of the strong language on page one in the discussion section, and I quote, a typical continuing education course doesn't improve overall outcomes for patients treated by therapists attending that course, end quote. And here's why I have a problem with this. I have several reasons. One, the intervention addressed neck pain only. It was heavily based in manual therapy. In the area of geriatrics, manual therapy is only a piece. Would these results be the same for a course on functional training, gait training, or therapeutic exercise? The age of the patients was mid-40, this number two. And this brings the issue of generalizability of the results to populations like older persons. The author implied that these would apply to everyone with neck pain. Where were the patients past the age of 65? Certain techniques for younger people are contraindicated in an older people. Sanaki study, for example, on flexion with osteoporosis. Thirdly, the design focused on teaching and mentoring abilities of two instructors who weren't blinded to the aftergroup. And finally, do we really know if the intervention or control group actually, and I'm quoting, treated patients in the manner more consistent with current best evidence? You know, Dr. Cleland said he wasn't going to look at that, but could it have just been the attention and the confidence from working with these two instructors? So I do think this study looked at good areas, but I think it had some real flaws. Okay. So you've raised some interesting points, Dr. Lewis. Before we go back to Dr. Cleland, what about we open up to Dr. Paris? What do you have to say about the trial? Well, most of what Dr. Lewis just said, I certainly agree with. I took exception at the very beginning when the same words that got Dr. Lewis's attention says, it appears that a typical continuing education course does not improve the overall outcomes for patients treated by therapists attending that course. Well, of course, that challenges what I have always thought. I think that people do improve their skills with continuing ed. So I looked at it more carefully and I found out that it was a two-day course, all right, but then I looked at that more carefully and I found out actually it was 
two four-hour days. So that's a one-day course, in my view. And the next, it was given to employees. They were asked if they want to take this program. That's no longer a course where people voluntarily, of their own account, decide they want to go and see something because they're really interested. This is a a one-day in-service. So I don't think that's typical of a continuing education course at all. One day in-service, and then in one day, they taught manipulation, thrust, and non-thrust in one day. I'm totally against that kind of instruction. That sort of instruction just leaves me cold. In my program, people go through a series of courses and have to pass an exam, less than half pass, before we teach thrust. But here they are taking relatively novice therapists, therapists who are not terribly experienced in the spine, teaching thrust in one day of education at the in-service level. I'm against it. So the paper upset me from that point on, and I feel that I needed to express that. Okay. So back to Dr. Quillen. What's your response to those uh, comments? Yeah, initially I would agree that the generalizability of any study has to be maintained within its context. And there's not going to be any study that's going to be generalizable to either every patient population or every con ed course. Does one size fit all? Probably not. And I think that there are issues we need to look at different populations, different settings, different con ed courses to see if that is indeed the case. This was just really an initial start to see, you know, does training, an eight-hour course and follow-up, does that improve patient outcomes greater than just this eight-hour course? And that was really the basic premise of this initial study. Why did you call it a two-day course when it was only eight hours? Well, we held it over two days. It was a two-day over two days. It was four hours one day and then four hours the following day. But it was clear in there that it was just an eight-hour course. It's about being pragmatic and practical here. It's tough to carry out one of these studies and to get a facility to say, yes, you can do this quality improvement project, and yes, you can take my clinicians away from treating patients and the income that that would bring about for two entire days. So really, again, that's a pragmatic approach. And additionally, these individuals had had experience in manual therapy techniques and mobilization and manipulation. The question was, do they use these interventions with the right patient population or what we believed based on the evidence was the right population? So they were not just green to mobilization, manipulation, and manual therapy techniques. They do have prior experience. They do have prior education in which patients are appropriate for physical therapy and which are not. Okay. If I Um, can bring the discussion back to the outreach approach, because I think the key thing that's been offered here in this trial is the addition of an educational outreach visit. I think the thing that's novel and interesting here is the additional implementation of this highly skilled clinician coming out to the clinic and helping people work with their patients. And certainly in the commentary on this trial offered by Gwen Joel, she used a really interesting analogy of Tiger Woods. You know, you can't just start playing golf if someone teaches it. You've got to practice and you need some supervision. And I think that sort of issue applies to all areas of physical therapy. The physical therapy treatments often involve motor skills. So if we get back to that idea of an education outreach visit, if we go back to Carol, does that have any relevance to the setting of geriatric practice for physical therapists? I think it's great. I think a follow-up is the perfect way for students to learn. And I really think continuing education courses need to do that. For example, Great Seminars does several things. We have a consulting service where the instructors will go out, spend days. The problem is the financial implications of that. So we offer other things, DVDs with the manual skills on them so that the students can practice it. 
We offer hefty group discounts, for example, and then they can all practice and do some self-monitoring and mentoring. I think the one-on-one is fabulous. Just like Dr. Cleland did, he said, really, it was that discussing the patient case that made it all click and come together. I think his was the best, sort of the gold standard, but I'm not sure everybody can afford that right now. It's a huge investment to be able to pay for somebody to then follow up. So we need to look at web-based teleconferencing after a course so that people can discuss ideas that they've learned at the course. And I think as a profession, we can easily start looking at those. You raised an issue about practicality. Maybe I'll open that up to Dr. Paris. Can you envisage ways where we could actually get these people out there in the clinic? Are there some ways we can use technology? I think Carol started on that. Do you have any other ideas about how we can get a virtual Josh Cleland out into different people's clinics? <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, I agree. Uh, what this paper has shown that two one-and-a-half-hour sessions with the expert, with the instructor, in the presence of the patient is very worthwhile and it improved the outcomes. But this surely is what we intend to happen with residencies and fellowships. And we know that uh, this is something coming in the profession that we can teach if we wish in a classroom, but we need to be working with these graduate therapists in a residency or in a fellowship. And the paper such as this that Joss has published proves, although it was only two one-and-a-half-hour sessions, that such time greatly enhances the outcomes. So I'm in favor of it, but I'm a strong supporter of residencies and fellowships as the only way that we can do this in an economical manner. Yeah, I would follow up with that, Stanley. All these surveys for fellows and residents that have participated in programs come back, and they state that the best part of the fellowship or the residency program or the most beneficial part of that was the one-on-one mentorship time with actual patient care. So. I would certainly agree that this probably lends some evidence to the support of these residency and fellowship programs. Okay, if I can raise an issue here. I mean, residencies are an intriguing issue, but I guess you have a residency at one point in your career. With continuing education, we're talking about lifelong learning. People have a career that might span four decades. How do we keep people up to date throughout their career? Dr. Lewis, do you have any ideas about how we can keep people up to date throughout their career? Well, I do think if we had something tied to the licensure where you took courses, but you also put it into a portfolio for yourself and showed a way that it tested your clinical skills, I think that might be the piece that's missing. The Federation of State Boards of Physical Therapy is looking at some kind of program. It's in the pilot stages. It's not a secret. If you tie it to the license, people will do it. And I think the Federation is the one that has the power to do it. APTA used to monitor courses. Now there seems to be very little regulation of these type of things. And so here we're even talking about courses that have a lot of good evidence. I mean, what about the problem where you have courses that don't even have good evidence and that's where the therapists go just to get their hours? So first, I think you do need the courses. You do need people to then want to take the information from the courses and translate it into the clinic be it by writing up case studies to turn in for their license past just the continuing education that shows integration of knowledge. These are the kind of things that are a little different, but I do think we have to look differently than the way we're doing it now. Okay, and Dr. Paris, do you have any thoughts on that issue about lifelong learning for a physical therapist? Certainly. I think what both Carol Lewis and I have is a series of courses and For my part, most people take two years to complete these courses. There are about six of them. 
And then at the end, they come back for a week of refresher and exams. Now, now you take those exams in written, oral, and practical areas, and less than half will pass the first time. They make up the portions they missed. Now, as to that effectiveness in the clinic, well, we haven't done those studies, and we don't go to the clinics of these graduates either. That's the part that's missing, and I don't know how you would get over that. Carol's idea of them being able to go online and watch the techniques again, that might help, but I still think there's nothing as good as working with the patient, the one-on-one, the master clinician, the student, and the patient. Fellowships address that a, a wee bit better, perhaps, than do residencies, because if we start having residencies here in the United States, and we do have them, but there's a precious few, they're straight after you graduate. But a fellowship, though, should be after you've got some experience. And it's a combination of education and experience to be a credentialed by APTA to run a fellowship. There has to be so many instructor hours present with you and the patient, faculty hours. That, I think, is a very worthwhile experience. And as people go into more and more fellowships, I think we'll find that that is the best way we can train anybody. So you've offered some interesting insights into how we could structure continuing education. If I was to be a bit provocative, I'm just back from Las Vegas in the combined sections meeting. What struck me was how large some of the presentations were. So you would have a group of people presenting to maybe 800 or 1,000 physical therapists sitting in a room passively, usually writing in a notebook. From what we understand about continuing education and keeping up to date with our skills, how likely is that to improve patient outcomes? I can speak to that on behalf of the medical literature, and and Grimshaw was really the forerunner looking at continuing education with physicians. They've showed that these passive courses, just didactic materials delivered, really does not, number one, change behaviors in any way, and number two, it doesn't improve patient outcomes. Well, that's where I think online courses might have an advantage. I'm one of those persons who sits in a class, and I try to pay attention, but I can't all the time. And the instructor says something stimulating, my mind goes off in that direction, I'm no longer listening. But when I take an online course or a CD program, I can stop at any time I like and rethink, play back, or I can hook out through the internet to the information that's referenced. And that's a much richer context, and I think that's the way of the future for much of education, because large classes don't allow everyone to engage, but online learning can dictate that they are engaged. There is technology now, though, turning technology, I don't know if you're aware of it, where you can respond to the lecturer even in a large class. You actually answer the questions with a response card. It's very fun. It's one way to keep people involved. They have, throughout the lecture, you put in pieces, I have this technology, and they answer your questions. And it keeps them involved because if they don't get them right, you have to repeat it, and then they have to discuss it, and then explain why they didn't understand that particular issue. I just offer a new question that we can pose to you all. What else do we need to know about continuing education? So if I offer it back to Carol. I would love to see some regulation of continuing education. For example, some of the courses that are offered are questionable, and therapists really need to know which continuing education opportunities are evidence-based and will improve their practice. I think APTA should take that up, or the federation, or the local board. Somebody needs to start looking at ownership for that. I know the medical profession has a more difficult time because some of their courses are sponsored by drug companies, and there may be a bias. So we don't usually have that in the physical therapy profession, but I do think we need to look at where the information 
is coming from. At the minimum, I think continuing education courses should do a pre and post test to see if people learn. And I'm shocked that people don't do that to see if anybody walked away learning anything. I would agree that courses should be evidence-based. We have a decent amount of evidence out there for physical therapy now. I think what in Pedro, there's over 10,000 clinical trials. So we have a wealth of evidence now or, or growing in that fashion. But I think, again, I think the question is, if we instruct these folks in evidence-based guidelines and they actually utilize these evidence-based guidelines, does it improve patient care? And a couple of the studies in PT looking at whiplash-associated disorders and low back pain actually show that these guidelines, even though they're adhered to by therapists, didn't improve patient outcomes. I want to go back and talk about the quality of this work. When you look at a continuing education course, it should be of adequate duration. There is a tendency today to try and teach too much in a very short period of time because the pressure on our lives is so great. Years ago, people went for three months to Vallejo to study under Maggie Knott to learn PNF techniques. And I thought nothing of running a two-week-long course myself. That today is not on. The pace of life doesn't allow it. So we've shortened things down sometimes, I think, to an inadequate length. The next thing is that there should be, as has been referred to already, a testing. We conduct written, oral, and practical exams. I think that's a defensible process. Do we have outcome studies on it? No. Would we welcome someone to look at it? Certainly. But we haven't funded that kind of thing in the past, and it needs funding. I applaud this little pilot study as a start, and I think it's important that we critique it so that we can improve on it and do a better job in the future. It's certainly needed. I think we've got time just for a little round-up from each of the participants. So maybe we start with Dr. Cleland. What would you leave as your concluding remarks? Yeah, I appreciate the discussion today, and I think all of us come back to the same thing, that some sort of longitudinal approach to education is appropriate and might be what is most beneficial for improving patient outcomes. And Dr. Lewis, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I want to thank you for asking me to be part of this podcast. I also want to thank Dr. Cleland for his vision and follow-through on this important topic. My thought is we need to explore alternatives to sitting back and blindly accepting that our treatment strategies or educational methods are effective. I think we always have to improve, and I hope that not just people conducting continuing education look at this, but also APTA, the Federation, the local agencies, and we really try to do something to make this whole process better. Thank you. And Dr. Paris, your concluding remarks? Well, clearly I've been engaged in continuing education for almost 50 years, and I know it's a less than perfect model of instruction. So anything that helps us to make it better should be welcomed, and I welcome this study, but I still have my severe reservations about it. A one day in service does not constitute continuing ed. But I do want to point out one other thing in this article. The first sentence said that 50% of patients with neck pain go to physical therapy. That sent alarm bells off my head because that's not my experience. In fact, Boysenorth, I think, published that 15% of patients with neck pain seek physical therapy. So I looked at the reference, and I found that the reference came from a Scandinavian journal, and at least one of the authors was Dutch. This is an article about American continuing education published in an American journal, and the lead statement was way off the mark culturally and didn't apply to this study. So I think we need more stringency. We need higher standards for publishing work that challenges the accepted norm. Yes, we must challenge, 
but we've got a responsibility here to honesty and to construct our studies in ways that fairly represent what goes on. I thank you once again for being part of this, and uh, I've enjoyed it. I found it stimulating, and I hope that the stimulus continues. Well, I'd really like to thank our three participants today. I've really enjoyed today's discussion. We've raised a lot of interesting issues, and I don't think we've got a resolution, but I think we've got a starting point and a commitment to quality in continuing education, but also evaluation of our continuing education programs. I think when we look back, we'll see that this study is actually a landmark study. It's one of the first in the area, and I think it's a really interesting and important study that provides a starting point for important research in this area. So thank you very much for all three of you. Thanks for listening. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. For comments or suggestions for upcoming topics, email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.